0: I can't seem to say. Welcome back to another episode of the Prime Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Holderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the firefighter wellness program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to nickholderbaum.com UFF to get started. Christy Ashwanden is an award-winning journalist and author of the New York Times bestseller, Good to Go. What the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. She's producer and co-host of Emerging Form, a podcast about the creative process. Previously the lead science writer at 538. she's an ideal columnist at Wired and a regular contributor to the Washington Post and New York Times. She's a lifelong endurance athlete, having been a high school track star, collegiate cycling champion, and elite Nordic skier. Christy, thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: When you look back on your career, how did not recovering properly keep you from reaching your full potential as an athlete?
1: Oh, my gosh, it totally did. One of the interesting things that I learned over the course of my career, and unfortunately, I was a little bit of a slow learner on this. Um, but what I eventually recognized is that I was actually an athlete Um who was very quick to get fit. And, you know, I responded very quickly to training, um, but I also require maybe more recovery than, than some other athletes. And I was an athlete who really uh, did my best on sort of a lower training load than a lot of other people did and sort of more emphasis on recovery, less emphasis on, you know, pushing yourself to the very limit. And this was something that it just took me a really long time to figure out. And the way that I figured it out was by chronically over-training and under-recovering. And I'll just say something. About overtraining, and that is that there are a lot of um, exercise scientists now who actually think that overtraining is not is, is sort of a misnomer that we should be calling it under recovering. That you know the, the, the definition of overtraining is when you are training more than your body can recover from, and that was sort of my chronic state, I think, for a lot of my athletic career. And part of this was that I didn't recognize that response to exercise and to training is very individual. And so I was looking around at what my teammates, um, you know, my competitors were doing for trading. And I was thinking that I had to keep up with them. And I had to do as many hours when in fact, you know, I really performed at my best when I was carrying a little bit lighter training load.
0: Just as we've gone from human beings to humans doing, has recovery gone from resting with your feet up to doing recovery with this feeling yeah. that you need to accomplish something?
1: Yeah, it's really nefarious. Actually, I think this is part of this sort of moment that our culture is in where you sort of always have to be doing something we have such a cult of productivity and there's a sense that you know you can't just be doing nothing that that's a waste of time you always have to be optimizing every little thing and this has really taken over the recovery you know the whole idea of recovery and uh, how we go about it and so recovery its most basic form is really just about your body um You know recuperating and doing all of the things that it needs to do physiologically to be prepared to go hard again prepared to you know do that that thing that you're doing and so what's happened is we've had these clever marketers that have come in and seen an opportunity here to say well okay it's no longer enough to just train hard you have to recover hard too and that means not just putting your feet up taking a nap you know emphasizing your sleep eating a good diet, but now there are all these things that you have to buy, products that you need to use, things that you need to be doing. And so what we've sort of done is turn recovery into sort of a new workout. You know, your workout is no longer over when it's over. Now you have to do the foam roller and the massage tool and the protein shake and all of these things. And and what it's done is sort of, you know, made recovery its own source of stress, which is completely productive.
0: Yeah. It's become an extension of training itself. And I tell the firefighters I work with that not sleeping on duty is bad enough without the added stress of not sleeping. Do you find this form of recursive stress around recovery as well, where athletes are stressing over not recovering?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think it's really important to understand that, that stress, your body stresses stress and anything that you're doing that is, you know, Providing a source of stress to you is impairing your recovery, and most of all, it's impairing your ability to perform at your highest level when you're called to do so. And so, you know, anything that you can do to manage the stress in your life. And notice that I say manage, I don't say eliminate. It's impossible for us to eliminate stresses from our lives. It's just a fact of life. We all have them. And so, you know, the, the best approach here is to figure out what are the things in my life? What are the things on a daily basis? Or maybe, you know, this can be periodic. Maybe there are times of the season or, or certain times when you're, you're, you know, pulling a long shift or something like that, that you know are going to be stressful. So how do you sort of plan ahead to address and to manage those stresses so that they don't take charge of you and they don't prevent you from being able to relax when you need to.
0: After reading close to a thousand research and journal articles and interviewing more than 250 sources and scientists and professional athletes, have you concluded that most popular recovery modalities work by exploiting the anticipatory effect or belief effect?
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Sometimes it's called the placebo effect, but I think it's important to understand that these are real effects. So what's happening is you expect that something's going to make you feel better. And so it does, and you know, our, subjective feelings of wellness and feeling, you know, good and ready to go and ready to perform. Some of that is mood. And some of that is sort of attitude and outlook and things like that. And so if we expect to feel good, we're going to. And so that can help. And in fact, I sort of in the book, almost make the case that it's okay. you know. We should not uh, look down on the placebo effect. And in, in fact, we should actually sort of look for ways to exploit it. And I'm not saying that you should go out and buy a bunch of snake oil, but I think what I'm saying is find some things that help you feel good. Find some things that help you relax. And don't worry so much about whether there's some scientific reason that some person has come up with to explain what's going on if that thing is helping you relax and helping you kick back and sort of let go of the stresses and letting your body uh, just take a deep breath, then that's good enough. And I think, you know, it's important to recognize that a lot of these sort of scientific explanations that are given for some of these recovery modalities are really just marketing tools. And they're really just ways for people that are trying to sell you stuff to give you a reason to say, look, this is bona fide And this is science. And if you don't do this, you're missing out. Well, I can tell you, um, you know, when it comes to recovery, the things that you really don't want to miss out on are sleep and, uh, you know, rest, like actual rest and uh, recuperation and periods of relaxation. Those are the things that are the the most important. Everything else, if it has an effect, it's going to be minor. And so, you know, those aren't the areas that you should focus on stressing out about or putting all of your energy into.
0: And what about trackers can too much focus on numbers and measurements be counterproductive and actually make athletes more fragile
1: oh my gosh, i'm so glad you asked about this i was just as it happens speaking to a track coach today for a story that i'm working on and he was just telling me about the complaining about how he hates uh, when his athletes are tracking every little thing because it introduces this source of anxiety um you know you have to really ask yourself is this thing that i'm tracking meaningful what does it really tell me that i can't figure out by just paying attention to how i'm feeling um the other the other issue is that a lot of these trackers you know their accuracy can vary a lot um you know in particular you know these risk-based heart rate monitors are very uh inaccurate and i think a lot of people don't realize that and so they're looking at their their heart rates on it or heart rate variability using that and the numbers just aren't aren't that good to begin with um, in the book, I have uh, a story about a, a an athlete or a person who went into actually made an appointment at the sleep lab to get tested. This person was so anxious they weren't they knew they weren't sleeping because their sleep tracker I don't know exactly what the device was whether it was a cell phone app or a wrist based app but you know one of these popular sleep apps was was telling the person that they weren't sleeping well and that their sleep was impaired. They go into the sleep lab and it's absolutely fine the problem was with the device but the data that the device was was turning out was was causing so much anxiety and undue stress because the person was paying attention to the numbers instead of paying attention to like how am i feeling am i feeling tired what if the watch tells me i'm not sleeping well but i feel good like maybe that's okay
0: Before we dive too deep into what works and what doesn't and balancing stress and rest, how do we gauge which workouts or stressors require recovery and which ones aren't stressful enough to actually require rest?
1: oh, that's a great question. I haven't been asked that very often. Um, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but, you know, one of the most important things athletes and any active person needs to develop is a sense of, you know, being able to read your body. And so I guess the answer to that, um, it actually varies a little bit. If you're If you're an elite athlete or a serious athlete, sometimes there are times in your training program where you're really trying to overload and you're training really hard and you want to be a little tired because you're trying to induce this training response and so you may want to go out and do some training when you are a little bit fatigued to teach your body how to do that and, and to you know provoke some training responses and so that's okay but I would say that in general you know it's okay to go by feel if you're feeling really really tired or your muscles are really feeling like you know they're wrecked, that's your body telling you, okay, I need some recovery. I need a rest day. I need, uh, maybe it, it could be a full day off. Maybe it's just something where you go out and do some easy exercise to get the blood flowing and, and just loosen up a little bit. Um, but, but I think it is okay to go by feel.
0: I know you were in the recover by field camp and you wrote that if you could go back and tell your younger self, anything, it would be learn to read your own body and listen to what it is telling you. How do you read your own body? I mean, what do you listen for and what is it? What does it sound like when your body is crying for rest?
1: Yeah, this is such a good question. And I just want to say, this seems like simple advice, but it's actually really hard to do. And what it requires is paying close attention and trying to sort of find the things that really matter for you. Um, You know, I've talked to a lot of athletes. I interviewed a lot of athletes when I was working on the book about what this looked like to them. And I can tell you for me what I what I figured out over the years is that when I wake up in the morning and have a little bit of a sore throat. Um, That's my body. That's one of the first signs that I get that I'm like overtired and that I need a break and that I'm too stressed and my body sort of needs more rest. For some athletes, it may be a particular, very distinct feeling of fatigue in their muscles. That's not something that's my sign personally, but I've talked to a lot of athletes that have that. It may just be sort of a, a feeling of overall fatigue where you feel like, oh, I just don't, you know, I don't feel like doing my activity today. You know, I'm a runner. I love running. But if I get up and it's like, I have a workout planned and I just can't get my head into it, you know, sometimes it's just, I'm in a bad mood or whatever. But one of the things I learned um, looking into the research is that mood is actually a really powerful um, insight into how your body is feeling. So it's not just, if, if you are someone who is like wanting to do this stuff, but you're not feeling it, that may be your body telling you, look, I need a rest. You know, the reason you don't feel like going out for that run today is that you're tired and you need another rest day or you need to take it easy. And you know, one way to test this is to start out and do I start feeling better once I'm out there or do I feel worse or do I continue to feel blah? And if you're still continuing to feel blah that's a pretty good sign that your body needs some rest.
0: Let's talk about massage therapy for a second because your husband is a great massage therapist and you guys trade massages once a week. Are there any real benefits of massage or is it mainly just good for relaxation and passing time while your body heals naturally?
1: Well, I would just say that, you know, those two things you just listed are benefits in and of themselves. So, you know, when you look at the science, there's not, you know, it seems like something that must be really scientific, but the the science just, just isn't really there. Some of the things that people hypothesize about loosening up muscles doesn't seem to be the case. You know, hmm. sometimes it's said that it flushes toxins. I'll just give you a hot tip. Anytime you're being told that something is flushing toxins, that's sort of like a red flag that this is snake oil or, or some sort of bull crap, um, but massage feels really good. It's a really good way to relax. And I think this goes back to my earlier point. If you find something that helps you feel good, that in and of itself is a beneficial and, and is helpful for recovery. And one thing that I do think is sort of maybe less easy to measure scientifically, but is it an important benefit from a massage is I think that it does help athletes uh, gain a certain body awareness. So when you're receiving a massage, you're really checking in with every muscle and every little thread of that muscle and how it's feeling and finding those places where you're most and least sore. And I think that can be beneficial too. This is part of that earlier thing we were talking about, about learning to read your body and really tuning into how you're feeling. So I think massage can do that. But again, like, like you sort of alluded to, it's also just an opportunity to, you know, relax for an hour and really not be doing all these other things, giving your body time to just, like I said, take a deep breath and um, relax.
0: So if it mentions flushing or lactic acid elimination, we should run the other way.
1: Yeah, that's right. Lactic acid is an interesting one because uh, there used to be this idea that lactic acid was what made your muscles sore. I mean, back when I was a high school runner, that's what my coach would say. And after a hard run, we'd want to like sit there and kind of rub our muscles because you got to flush that lactic acid out. Well, it turns out that lactic acid is in fact uh, something that's produced by hard exercise. Um, but it's not the thing that makes you sore. And in fact, this is interesting, it's actually cleared from your muscles pretty quickly. So usually by the time you're using one of these modalities, you know, whether it's the massage pants or, or some other thing, ice bath, that lactic acid is already, you know, has already been flushed uh, from those muscles, has already been cleared. So you're, you're not really doing anything in terms of that.
0: And the marketing around sports drinks rests on the premise that even minor dehydration raises health risks and hinders athletic performance and recovery. Is there any evidence that full fluid replacement is superior to just drinking to thirst?
1: No. And in fact, it it can be dangerous. Um, We, you know, while I was working on the book, I looked very far and wide to find an example of someone who had died during say a marathon or some other athletic event due to dehydration did not find that. But there are multiple examples of people who have died during or associated with athletic events from drinking too much. And this is, you know, it can be water, it can be sports drink. Uh, the the issue is that if you overhydrate, you can actually this can be a lethal, life-threatening. Um, condition it's called, it's called hyponatremia, also sometimes called water intoxication. And one of the things that makes this so dangerous is that many of the symptoms are similar to dehydration. You know, it's like confusion, um, things like that, fatigue. And so it's really important to not overdrink, and you shouldn't be forcing your <clears throat> you shouldn't be forcing yourself to drink when you don't feel thirsty, particularly while you're exercising. Um, yeah, you know, I think some of this goes to this notion that has been sort of i think planted in our brains from marketers that our, our bodies are these really fragile things that require you know this optimal balance and if you get just a tiny bit off everything's going to be be thrown off balance and your performance will suffer and your health will suffer and this just simply isn't true our bodies are actually very adaptable they're very very adept at coping with and um, you know adapting to different environmental conditions you know your your body is actually perfectly suited to lose some fluids during exercise. This is not to say you should not drink. Um, I, think, I think the takeaway here is that when you are exercising, you should have access to fluid, but drink to thirst. It really is that simple. And this idea that you should drink before you're thirsty just has no basis in scientific fact. And in fact, your, your body has um, this whole feedback mechanism to make sure Um, you know, that, that you're dealing okay when you're losing fluids, that your fluid balance will still inside your body remain okay. And inside your blood, Um, you know, this, this is sort of a complicated network that has to do with your kidneys. And so, you know, the reason that you pee less, um, when it's hot, and you're exercising in the heat, is that your body is holding on to those fluids, because it's losing fluids, it's making sure that it's keeping enough. Now, if you keep drinking, drinking, drinking and drinking to some formula, you're going to pee a lot, but you're not going to be, you know, functioning any better than you were. And in fact, you're, you're almost sort of teaching your body uh, to be less, less able to to deal with some fluid losses, because it's not, it's not Uh, creating the receptors and things that it needs to hold on to those fluids. So really, you know, the bottom line is drink to thirst, make sure that you have fluids available so that when you are thirsty, you can drink them. I mean, if I'm going to go out on a hot day and go for a run, I'm going to make sure that I have a water bottle with me. But if it's not that cool, uh, if it's not that hot out and I'm running for less than an hour, I'm not going to take a bottle because I know for myself, I'm not going to get thirsty. Maybe when I get back, I'll be thirsty, I'll drink something. Um, But this is individual too. And I think, you know, it's really about tuning into your own thirst signals and believing them. And, you know, our bodies, uh, you know if if our bodies needed a scientist looking over our shoulder to tell us exactly how much to drink at every moment I don't think that we would have as the species made it this far, right?
0: That's a great point. Our bodies have our best interests in mind. So whether it's working on the gym and having a good sweat or coming out of the sauna, or for some of my listeners coming out of a fire, as long as you're just drinking, drinking, to thirst, you're going to be fine.
1: Yeah, that's right. You really are.
0: And the anabolic window, do we need to replenish glycogen stores and protein right after our workouts? Or is it fine to eat when hunger ensues naturally?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's sort of like the drinking, you know, it's fine to Uh, Just eat to hunger, eat your next meal, you don't have to have, there used to be this idea that there was this anabolic window, particularly if you were, um, you know, doing strength exercise, things like this, that you really needed to get some protein in, you needed to get some carbs, you needed this nutrition right away, there was this short period in which you needed to get it or your response and your recovery would be impaired. And so, you know, you wouldn't get as strong, you would be more tired, et cetera. But now we know that that's simply not the case. And I think, you know, some of those ideas came out of just, um, you know, they were artifacts of the way some of these early studies were done. Um, Now we know that the important thing is that, you know just that you're getting good nutrition throughout the day that you're getting that protein that you need. Um, but it's fine and probably better to be getting it in, you know, doses throughout the day rather than in one giant. You know, you don't need to finish your workout or you know finish whatever athletic, you know, physical pursuit you're doing and then have a gigantic protein shake. I mean, that's a convenient way for makers, you know, of milk products who have all this leftover, uh, you know, milk protein from various uh, manufacturing processes. I mean, this is a really convenient way for them to make money off of that and and sell something but there's really no physiological reason why you need to do that and some of these products that are marketed as recovery things you know the one thing that, that I'll say is that some of them can be very convenient and so it's not to say that you should not use them but they they're not superior to regular food unless you are in a situation you know if you're you're in a situation where you are performing physical activity at a intense level and then you have a break and then you're going to go out and do it again so maybe you are on a fire and you have this this break where you're going to be able to have a meal and then go back out then yeah absolutely you want to get some protein in and you want to eat but again it's fine to eat to hunger and all of that this idea that there's this magic window that has to be uh, adhered to is is just has been overturned we know that it's not true
0: Sometimes it's difficult to get all of that protein right afterwards or in one meal. The staggered approach is a little bit easier for most people.
1: It is. And it also allows you to eat. I mean, personally, I much prefer, you know, a piece of meat or, you know, a piece of real food, some sort of actual meal, to a protein shake or a protein bar. I know some people like that stuff. And I mean, that's fine if, if that's your jam go for it. And you know, there are instances where maybe having something like that is more convenient. I mean, I'll tell you what, after a really hard workout, I'm, I am often hungry, and I do want to have a snack or something. But it, you know, the, the idea that you have to have this particular certain thing in a certain amount just, just isn't the case.
0: And you have a whole chapter in the book about supplements that you've summarized in three words, don't take them besides the yeah. fact that we don't know what we're actually getting in them. Are there any good reasons to take them at all?
1: No, there really aren't. I mean, look, there are very few exceptions um occasionally you know some some athletes particularly um menstruating athletes may sometimes uh, become iron deficient, in which case they may need an iron supplement, although it's it's much better to get that iron from food if you can. Um, but this is, this is also something that you don't want to self-diagnose. You really need to have a blood test and make sure and work with the doctor on this, because there are people who actually uh, have a condition where they overload iron. And so you don't want to just assume that this is what's going on. Um, but no, there really isn't. And particularly if you're someone who's doing a lot of physical activity, you're probably eating a lot of calories. And the, the idea that you would be deficient in anything is just nonsense. And look, there are a lot of supplement companies out there. It's, it's pretty unregulated industry. Um, they're going to try and convince you that they, there's something special, uh, that you can get some performance benefit from their supplement. I can tell you that uh, the makers of supplements even started their own journal to try and, you know put out this uh, stuff that looks like scientific research showing this stuff. I mean, you, you can't believe the marketing. There's just really no good reason. And there's actually some very good reasons to stay away from supplements. One of them being that, um, you know, illicit uh, drugs undeclared ingredients very regularly turn up at these supplements. Um, I just wrote a story for the Washington Post about this um, you know, this, this is a complicated issue. I don't want to get into all the details, but basically the, the way the rules are set, the FDA doesn't actually have the authority very often to remove the, They can find that a product has, you know, uh, some sort of drug in it that it's not supposed to have, you know, here you think you're taking a natural supplement and it has some pharmaceutical from China. Um, but, but, Oftentimes, uh, it's sort of voluntary that the company pulls it off the shelves. Many times, these these products remain for sale. They're still out there, even though they've been found uh, to be adulterated. Uh, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, um, which is... Uh, does the drug testing in sport in the US actually has a whole program to uh, inform athletes about the dangers of supplements because so many athletes have tested positive for illicit substances uh, that they ingested from a a supplement. And in fact, I wrote a story, and this is also in the book about a swimmer who actually had to sit out at Olympics because she tested positive Uh, for a steroid that she ingested in a supplement um, that apparently was a supplement provided by her sponsor. And this gets to the other issue here is that these supplement companies have spent a lot of money um, sponsoring athletes, sponsoring sports teams, sponsoring even whole leagues. And so this creates a situation where it looks like everyone's taking them and you have to take them. Well, that's because the companies are paying those athletes to do that and to promote them. Um, So it, it really is about marketing, it's not science.
0: We like to mimic the athletes that we see on Instagram and their recovery process.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, you have to realize those athletes are getting paid to use that stuff and to show you, you know, show them using the, the stuff. And so, you know, you have to take it all with a grain of salt. And, you know, I think the thing to ask yourself was, you know, did this athlete, uh, start taking the supplement and all of a sudden become an Olympian? No, the athlete became an Olympian. And so the, the supplement company came to them and said, here, we're going to give you a load of money to show yourself using this and to promote this product. Um, you know, so don't don't get it backwards.
0: In the book we learn that cold therapy like ice baths and cryotherapy are actually detrimental to recovery and slow the healing process. So is cold bad for gains but good for sprains?
1: Yeah, I mean, so look, cold is a very is very good at uh, pain relief. You know, if you sprain your ankle and it's throbbing like hell, yeah, you know, putting it in an ice bath or putting some ice on it can make it feel better. Does it help the healing process? Not really. I mean, the thing that icing is spo- supposed to do is reduce inflammation, but what is inflammation? Inflammation is your body's healing process, and so if you're reducing inflammation, you're actually slowing healing, you're slowing recovery, and this has been shown in studies and so you know occasionally there are times when you want to do this if the inflammation is causing some other other problem or something like that, but you know th- there's really the idea that icing or cold baths or any of this stuff is going to speed recovery is just just backwards.
0: And I'm all about contrast therapy as in going from sauna to cold plunge and just heat therapy in general. And I know you looked pretty deep into the evidence behind infrareds and found almost nothing that was actually in the correct context to be applica- applicable to athletes besides the relaxation. But did you look into dry saunas as a recovery tool? Because they are very different.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, basically it's, it's the same concept. It's just, how is the heat being delivered? I mean, infrared um, is just a special different kind of heat. You know, it's a little bit of an infrared sauna is like a little bit cooler than a regular sauna. You know, if you like that, that's cool. Heat is good for increasing blood flow. I think it can be very, very good for relaxation. I mean, personally, I love hot springs. I like saunas. They make me feel good. They help me relax. Um, but the idea that there's something magical going on in your body that, you know, there's somehow the thing that's magical about them is that they're helping you relax. And that is like the definition of recovery. But, um, you know, this, these marketing claims that infrared is doing something special to your muscles or to your brain or to your body chemistry and all this stuff that just is not grounded in fact. And so, you yeah, know this is stuff goes back to my earlier point. If it helps you relax, go for it for it. And, you know, forget about all the marketing claims. Look about Mm. look, look to is this helping me relax? And I'll tell you what, like an ice bath does not help me relax a sauna, maybe so.
0: (laughs) Rhonda Patrick has a lot of evidence showing that sauna bathing after dry saunas after high intensity exercise can reduce delayed onset muscle soreness and improve muscle strength and counteract muscle wasting. So the reason why I ask is just because these benefits are probably due to heat shock proteins, which I don't think infrareds activate.
1: It could be, but I'll just say like a lot of those, st- I've seen those studies and I've seen the marketing and the the stuff that's being pointed to about saunas being so great. And yeah, you know, those studies are all pretty small. I don't I don't think that they're that convincing. Um, I, I don't think that the benefits are so great. Yeah, you know, there, there's these ideas that this is super scientific and there's this special thing going on in your muscle and this is gonna make the whole difference. The thing that's helping here is that it's helping you relax. I don't think that the evidence that there's some heat shock protein, you know, thing that's going on and all of this stuff. And like I said, I have looked at those studies. They tend to be of low quality. Um, you know, you can take them together, put them in a pile, uh, a pile of low quality studies is still a pile of low quality evidence. So it's not convincing, but again, it's not to say that asanas aren't great. They're great because they make you feel good. And, you know, if you're someone who feels like an ice bath makes you feel good, I'm not gonna tell you not to do it. I mean, there, in that case, there actually is some evidence that the icing and, and the cold can uh, you know, impair recovery. But I think again, the, ben- the, the effects are fairly small um, so really it goes back to that idea of figuring out the best way for you to relax.
0: Yeah. So it helps you relax and improve sleep quality as well. And there is no such thing as recovery without sleep. It's the number one recovery tool by far. So what are some things that screw with our sleep, therefore preventing us from recovering properly?
1: Yeah, good question. I mean, you know, I think we all know some of the the top ones, caffeine. Um alcohol, you know, alcohol can help you fall asleep, but then you know, you, you wake up, it it prevents you from sleeping as well as you would otherwise. So that's just something to go, you know. I'm a fan of alcohol, but don't overdo it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another thing is just stress. A lot of people um will will wake up in the middle of the night and stress out and look at the clock. One thing that I recommended to friends who have insomnia that seems to be really helpful is to take the clock away. Um, even if it's, you need it in there because you need an alarm, turn it away so that you can't see it and you can't be um, worrying about not sleeping. There's just some very basic sleep hygiene habits that you can do, not looking at screens for like an hour uh, before bed, uh, you know, not being exposed to bright light before bed can help you fall asleep and help you sleep better, M- making sure um, you know this, this time of year when um, we have long days, Uh, making sure that you have some darkness in your bedroom if you need it if you're going to be sleeping during a time where there might be bright light things like that making sure that you you know are in bed and have if you go to bed at a time when you have to get up six hours later the maximum amount of good sleep you're going to get is six hours and that's not enough so I think just having good habits in terms of bedtime and wake-up time and you know, the experts really counsel people to make sure to have regular bed times. You know, it's it's harder for your body when you're going to bed really late some nights and going to bed early, other nights or getting up, you know, at various times. Mm-hmm. It's optimal if if you can sort of have those things be regular. Um, but I think the, the most important thing, and this is where maybe people sort of miss the boat, is just prioritizing sleep. Sleep is the Probably the most important thing that you can do for your body, you know, aside from, uh, you know, nutrition and things like that. And so making sure that it's a priority that you're not saying, well, I have some work to do. I'm just going to stay up or well, I'm going to just watch one more episode of this Netflix show or whatever. Like that's where you really get into trouble.
0: Absolutely. It's a non-negotiable. And the thing is when I work with these firefighters, for example, on duty sleep is out of their control. They know they're going to be up multiple times throughout the night taking runs. So if you were a firefighter or a new mom or someone who doesn't get sleep every night, what form of workout, for example, walking or high intensity interval training or strength training, which requires the least amount of recovery. So we could do it on duty. And if we don't sleep, it would be the least damaging.
1: That's a good question. I mean, I think you'd you'd wanna not do anything that was too high intensity because that requires more recovery. So maybe the lower intensity would be better. Um, But I think that when you're in those sorts of situations Um, where you know you're going to have a period where you're not going to have optimal sleep or you're you're going to be sleepless, making sure that you go into that with more sleep, making sure that you have a strategy. Naps are great and they're a really good way to catch up on sleep if you're not getting enough. And this applies to like new mothers and new parents and things like that too. I mean, that's a more challenging situation because you have this little creature who who may prevent you from taking those naps and all that. But figuring out ways like maybe you can't sleep a full eight hours in the night but then saying, okay, I need to make up a couple of hours. How can I do that surrounding that period where I don't have sleep? Because having, you know, having one or two bad nights of sleep is not going to wreck you forever. I mean, your body can bounce back from that, um, but you don't want that to become chronic. And it kind of goes back to that earlier point I was making about stress. And that is, you know, you can't eliminate stress, but planning for it and sort of figuring out ways to manage it. It's really essential. And I think This applies to, you know, known periods where you're going to have less than optimal sleep is figuring out, okay, how can I make up for that? How can I support myself so that I'm I'm able to, to deal?
0: So sleep is everything. If the best thing, if the best thing people can do is just focus on the fundamental basics, what are the basics that we have to nail down?
1: So sleep is number one. I mean, it's by far the most important one. I think second is managing stress in your life, figuring out ways to handle that. Um, And then I think the third thing that I, I really emphasize to people is making sure that on a daily basis, you have some sort of relaxation ritual. You should have some time in every day that's just set aside I mean, almost to do nothing, whether it's to sit back with a book and, you know, do that. Maybe, you know, for me, oftentimes it's sitting this time of year in summer, I'll be sitting on my front porch with my feet up, watching the sunset, maybe having a glass of wine, but some period in the day where there's no expectation of productivity, there's no sort of pressure on yourself to do something, but where you can really just relax, whatever relaxation looks like to you think that's a really important thing. And nutrition is important too. but there's no secret formula for that. I think it's just really, you know, eating a healthy variety of foods and not becoming too obsessed over diet too, because that can be counterproductive in the same way that we were talking earlier about sleep being.
0: So it's so important to bookend your day with relaxation rituals, your morning walk and ending each day with a glass of wine and a sunset. Most of our stress is psychological stress. So relaxation is recovery.
1: That's right. That's very well said.
0: I'm like you, I get antsy and anxious if I'm not moving. So how do we master the art of stillness?
1: Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. And I think some of it, you know, managing anxiety and managing stress can help a lot. Um, But I think some of it is just prioritizing it too and realizing, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to do this. I can do this.
0: So it all comes down to drink when thirsty, eat a nutritious meal when hungry, relax when stressed, and get plenty of sleep when sleepy.
1: Exactly. Yes. Well said.
0: If you'd be so kind to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now?
1: I am. I'm reading this fantastic sci-fi novel called The Sparrow. Author is Mary Doria Russell. And it is fantastic. It's, uh, it's hard to explain too much about it without giving too much away. But basically the premise is that uh, they found... Uh, extraterrestrial life and they go out to see it and everything goes very wrong. Good intentions go bad.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And then if you were forced to give away all of your books, except for one, which one would you keep?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, one that I really love that sits on my shelf that just sort of feels like home to me is a book called The Meadow by James Galvin. He's a poet and writer, and it's actually uh, just a beautiful Book that's very much about sense of place and a little bit about stillness, I guess.
0: Awesome. And then a question that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast: If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why?
1: I was thinking about this, and it's so hard. It's so hard to choose, but uh, I don't know. I've been I've been watching this great show on Apple Plus called For All Mankind, which is an alternative history of the NASA, the space race of the NASA program, and it's got me thinking about Sally Ride and I think it would be really fun to go out uh, have a drink with her.
0: Oh, I love that. All right, Christy, well this was a great conversation. People can find your book at goodtogobook.com. Where else should people go if they want to follow along with you?
1: Yeah. So I've got a podcast that's about creative process. Um, you can find that at emergingform.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, that, that's about it. My website is just my first name, last name, christyashwandan.com.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Prime And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.